Well, welcome everybody. Uh, glad you came out to Anchor Baptist Church tonight. We're having a we had a good time today. We're having a good time right now. Brother Joe's going to come up and preach at us for a few minutes, and uh, I say a few minutes. It could be a few hours. I don't know how long it's going to be. Uh, I know how long I go, and, and sometimes it's kind of hard. So I will sit down and let Brother Joe have it. Boy, glad aren't you glad Jesus passed by? They sang that song, and I was back here just thinking 1980 on that back porch. And I know people probably get sick of it, but it goes right back into my mind and. And I'm sitting here thinking, Lord, I said, I remember you woke me up at night, and I just remember going to that back porch. I remember just sitting there waiting for you, and I didn't think you came. I really didn't think you came. I was just sitting there. He never came. I, I literally thought he was going to come and sit next to me and, and just appear, because that's what that book said. He could just do that stuff. He could walk through walls. He could do whatever he wanted to do. In my mind, I just thought he would sit right next to me, and we'd have a chat. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And I waited, and he never came. And I, I looked up. I remember looking up at the sky and saying, hey, I don't blame you. I wouldn't have come for me either. And I got back up and went to bed. You're talking about the best night of sleep I ever had in my life. I, that night changed everything. I mean, it, things just changed. He came in a way. See, the Lord sometimes comes in a way you don't think. And, and you think it's going to be one way, but it's really totally different. It's really always the best way. So anyways, I'll shut up, Brother Joe. I'll give it to you. There's the thing. Got it. All right. Well, I'm getting hooked up. Why don't you turn over to Luke chapter number 23. Gospel of Luke chapter 23. David, you yell at me if I'm doing something wrong, but I don't think I am. I think so. You tell me. I'll do that. What does it say? There we go. That better? I like the confidence. We're hot. All right. That's the most trouble I've ever had with this thing. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that to like ping on him. I think he's doing great. All right, Luke chapter number 23, we'll read a few verses tonight. Hopefully they're familiar verses because that means you've read them before. And uh, at, least, at least you've read the Gospels, hopefully. Amen? Maybe some of the Old Testament has eluded your personal reading, but hopefully at least this part has gotten in there somewhere. Okay, Luke chapter number 23, we'll start in verse number 33. The Bible says, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary... There they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also is written over him in the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which uh, were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. 
And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for allowing us to be in church tonight. In the next few moments, Father, I pray that, Lord, you might rest upon this place. And, Father, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you'd move me out of the way, wash me in the blood, step through this nothing, Father, and do something for somebody here tonight. We're, again, thankful that we have this book. We're thankful that we have these accounts uh, of your life and, and uh, the lives of others that we may learn and prosper from them here in the time in which we are. And God, I pray, Lord, that all that have come out tonight, Lord, that they leave here a little bit closer to you than what we came. We love you now. We pray you bless this time. We, we commit it into your hands. May you do what you see fit now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's important that uh, we never get too too enamored with the other things in the Bible that we lose sight of what just took place here in Luke chapter 23. I feel like sometimes, especially as a preacher, I feel that there's this unwarranted pressure to try to always come up with something new or something fresh or something that uh, a new spin on a passage that nobody's maybe seen before. And there's this pressure to always kind of be reinventing the wheel, if you will. And I'm going to preach the same passage, but a totally different way than so-and-so. Hey, can I tell you something that that's not the way the church was built? That's not, that's, listen, that's not, that's not uh, what Jesus Christ thought of when he thought about uh, faithfully preaching the whole counsel of God. And I am afraid that a lot of preaching today has been polluted in some regards with philosophy and psychology and earthly wisdom, to say the least. And I think that it's a danger, uh, especially with as much information as we have access to as preachers and as Christians, that sometimes those things that we hear from quote-unquote intellectuals or even church fathers or church uh, leaders, I should say, not church fathers, but church leaders that seem to have a corner of the market when it comes to the Bible and how they, they put their own spin on things and they bring in these different philosophies, I think that it's dangerous as Christians, because it pollutes the purity of the Word of God and the message in which it was supposed to be preached in. And you know what? I think that uh, tonight, i uh, do my best here to just maybe bring out a few things that you already know. Some things that to you is probably what you would consider elementary. Some things to you that, listen, you may, you may, you may could come up here and preach it better than I can tonight. And I hope you can. But for a few moments tonight... Would you see the picture that was just painted here in Luke chapter 23 with Jesus Christ? And again, as you've seen so many times and heard preached so many times, we come to the scene of the bloody cross of Calvary. And he's been wrongly convicted. He's been spat upon. He's been beaten. He's had his beard plucked out. He's been beaten within an inch of his life. They put those kind of nine tails and wrapped them around the body of Jesus Christ and ripped the flesh off of his bones. And the Bible says that his visage was more marred than any man. You couldn't even tell he was a man. He looked like a hanging piece of meat in a butcher shop that failed to, uh, to wring the blood out of the, the carcass before they butchered it up. Hanging there naked in humiliation in front of everybody. And in Matthew chapter 27, in the same account, in verse number 36, the Bible says, and they sat down and they watched him there. They watched him there. And, of course, I sit back and I think, well, what did they see? And don't you know, when you look at something like that, and in those days, that was great entertainment. That was entertainment in those days. Oh, there's a public uh, crucifixion, and it was like the whole town would come out. 
And they sat down there and they saw a man, but there was something different. There was something different about what was going on here. And in this scene, uh, this horrible scene, you know, I was uh, talking to somebody one time, they were a Catholic, and they said uh, uh, they, had, they, had, they had married outside of the Catholic Church and they weren't going to the Catholic Church anymore. And I asked them, I, you know, uh, we were talking, and he says, you know, I kind of miss, miss the Catholic Church. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, what do you miss about it? He says, I miss seeing Jesus on the cross. You know, in the church, they got, you know, the crucifix up there and they got Jesus hanging on the cross. I said, why in the world would you miss that? You sick human being. <laughs> why in the world? That was, that was the worst day. <laughs> why would you want to relive that day? And I know these people, we, uh, Christians, they, we get fixated on, you know, these little, you know, trinkets and all that kind of stuff. You ever been to the, the you know, the angel lady's house? Anybody ever been there on visitation? You know, you walk up and you knock on the door and they open the door and like the whole thing's covered in angels. And you're like, dear Lord, it looks like you know, fairies are like running around in here or something like that. looks like uh, Peter Pan or something like that. They're flying around in there. And you're like, man, this place is weird, you know. And uh, sometimes Christians, they get that way, you know, and they got crosses everywhere. Now, I got some crosses in my house. Don't get me wrong. But I tell you, um, I never want to look at this day and, and just think of it as a mural on a wall. This was the day when God the Father poured out the wrath of God on the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, so He could bear the sins of you and I. And He died a gruesome and bloody death that He didn't have to. At any moment, He said He could call 12 legions of angels to come and take Him down off the cross, but yet He stayed. And yet in the scene here in which we're reading, we find out that although Jesus Christ to us is the focal point, there's two other men there, and there's two malefactors. There's one on one side and one on the other. And in the middle of this, although Jesus Christ is the main thing, I believe that, there's a story to be told and a picture to be seen from these two men, these two other malefactors. Because you know what they do? They represent the state of every person on the face of this planet. If, you, if you're in here tonight and you can understand my words of my, that are coming out of my mouth, you're one of those two men. You mean that happened 2,000 years ago and you're sitting in 2021? That's you tonight. Somebody. You're one of those two. And uh, if you look at this, I want to just bring a f few things out here. I want you to look at the problem these two men have. Because it's the same problem that everybody in here has. <laughs> They're hanging on a cross, and guess what? They're about to die. And there's nothing that they can do about it. There's not one thing that they can do to now reverse the fact that they're facing death square in the face. And I know this isn't a popular subject, right? I mean, nobody likes to think about death, you know? I mean, I don't go around my day just thinking about death all the time. That's weird. And if you think about that, you probably got like long black hair and pink fingernails, something like that. And you're kind of weird. OK, but listen. They're staring this thing dead in the face, just like everybody in here. We have no idea. You know what? You know what? Uh, you know what this thing, whole pandemic has done? It's made people reconcile the fact that they're not immortal. And this microscopic, invisible bug could maybe take them out at any time. 
And so for the first time, you want to know why some people have gotten crazy over the last year and a half, two years? You want to know why? Because they're faced with, faced with the thought of them dying. You know, the difference between me and them is I've already faced that reality. I understand that reality. I don't push it out of my mind. I know it's there. I don't fixate on it, but I know it's there. But I've had it settled in the past. Amen. And these two men, they have a problem, and that is they're going to die. And there's no cure. You realize that all the technological science that you have in the medical science world, and just think about the miraculous miracle of the vaccine. It was a modern wonder that we could produce a vaccine that doesn't protect you from the virus. Right? I'm not trying to downplay it, but I'm saying this. They haven't cured death yet. They haven't cured that yet. Listen, there's only so much man can do when it comes time to die. I had a friend in Pensacola. His dad had cancer real, real bad. And I remember uh, he was getting ready to go, and they had brought him home, and they put him on hospice. And as he was on hospice, they had him all fixed up, and he didn't want to go to the hospital and die. He knew he was dying. But he had cancer so bad, he had tumors that were, that were growing so large, they were breaking his bones and pushing his bones through his skin. That's how bad cancer he had. And you know what? That man worked every day of his life and brought his family to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school, every service. They lived 45 minutes away, and he drove with cancer all the way up until he was on a hospice bed. That one was free. I had really nothing to do with the illustration, but man, that puts me under conviction. And you don't want to know something? I remember my, brother, uh, my friend Timmy, he came to me and he said, my dad's dying, man. And they had him hooked up and they had morphine drips and they had all this different stuff and he had nurses in there 24-7 and all this stuff was going on. And guess what? There was nothing they could do to save him. You know what happened? He died. He's gone. He's dead. They couldn't cure him. And nothing's ever going to cure it. Now, they may cure some sicknesses, and thank God, hey, listen, life expectancy now is a whole lot longer than it was 50 years ago. It's a whole lot longer than it was 100 years ago. But guess what? They're not batting a thousand. Everybody dies, and you're going to die. And there's no cure for it. You know what uh, the world tries to do? They try to cover it up, they try to desensitize you to the fact that death is coming. They try to desensitize you to the fact that the ultimate end of this life is death. You know what they want to do? They want to say, forget about that death, death thing. YOLO, baby. <laughs> Amen. Do what you can now. You only live once. Find what you love and just chase your dreams. Right? In Hollywood, what, they, they sensationalize it. They, they try to cover it up. They try to desensitize you. I mean, you, you know, you guys that uh, play video games and all this different stuff, you're, you're living in a generation where death is literally desensitized for the majority of young people because that's what they see on a constant basis. Elementary school kids, when that movie It came out, that's all they were talking about. You talk about these, these, these war movies and all this. I, listen, I'm... I'll be honest with you, I've seen a lot of war movies. I kind of like them. They're cool. 
right? But you got people that all they do is watch movies. And they're constantly bombarded with death all the time. And you know, it becomes desensitizing to them. You got these, they say, school shootings are a real problem. I wonder how much uh, Grand Theft Auto those kids are playing before they go shoot up a school. I wonder how much Call of Duty they're playing before they, you know, load up their, their handgun and start going hog wild. You mean we don't have you you mean that you mean that the, the culture in which you live in isn't culpable at all? That's what they want you to think. That's baloney. Because you can't you can't you can't constantly be seeing that. I remember the first time I witnessed a death. I was in jail school, and uh, you know I'd seen movies and that kind of stuff, and I'd seen all that thing. And we're sitting in jail school. We were over in Indiana, and we had to drive an hour or something like that to go to this jail school. And I'm sitting there, and they said, "Today we're going to show you some things. The importance of patting people down." And I thought, "Well, okay. I mean, I get it. You don't want, you want to make sure you pat people down so they don't have drugs and they don't have paraphernalia and all this different stuff." And they show us this uh, this video of the uh, inter- interview room. The detectives had brought somebody in, and they had just gone through book in. And as they went through book in, the, the COs they came out, they patted him down, they did everything, open your mouth, lift your tongue, so on and so forth. And they cleared him. They put him back into the interrogation room. And here comes the detective. He comes in, and says, "Hey, can I get you a, a glass of water? Can I get you anything?" He says, "No, no, I'm fine." And he walks out. He says, "I'll be right with you." And that's of course a tactic. You get, you, you've heard Doctor. Peacock talk about it. They let him go in there and they let him stew a little bit, right? They let him marinate. And sure enough, this guy, I think he's like 45 years old, he reaches in the front of his pants and pulls out a, a nine millimeter handgun, puts it up against his head, pulls the trigger and blows his brains out. And I remember as I'm sitting there watching this thing, I got physically sick. And I was like, I was like, my, I got all tingly like you're having like a panic attack or something. And I'm like sweating. I'm thinking, I've never seen anything like that before. But you want to know something? I've seen, I've seen things since then. And it never has the same reaction as it did that first time. I'd seen videos after that they showed us in training. And it never affected me the way that it did that day. Because that stuff, when you see it all the time, it desensitizes you. Can I say this? You can't cover up. Death is a gruesome thing. Death is a reality that we all must face. Death is something that I don't care how much lipstick you put on it, you can't make that pig look pretty, okay? And guess what? I don't care what it is that uh, Hollywood does. I don't care uh, what it is that uh, that uh, society tries to do to just cover the thing up, make you not think about it, and put every candle or little uh, shiny object out in your way to get you to chase this and chase that and chase this, because after all, don't focus on death, just focus on life. And so they, they advertise this and advertise that and constantly get you focused on living so that you never spend any time thinking about dying. And can I say this? You'll never know how to live until you first learn how to die. I had a guy I went to school with when I was in high school. I remember I was in eighth grade, and I just started playing basketball for the you know, modified team and, uh, before I switched school districts. And there's a guy there I was playing ball with. His name was Brandon Dunlavy. And Brandon Dunlavy was really good at basketball. My mom's shaking her head. Everybody knows him where we're from because we live in a small little town. And when you get somebody that's that good and he's got D1 offers and full-ride offers, like you're thinking, hey, maybe they'll put Malone, New York on the map. 
<laughs> Maybe they'll know we're here <laughs> if he makes it, right? Well, he had all these things, and I remember, uh, I remember one night they were driving to Plattsburgh, and they were tri- driving back, and him and Johnny Nichols was in the car, and his girlfriend Nicole was in the car, and uh, they were driving home from Plattsburgh, went and saw a movie or something like that, and uh, they were doing nothing wrong. They weren't drinking. They weren't, I mean, he's a good kid. He's a good kid. I mean, fantastic basketball player. Shoot the three. He could dunk. He could, do, he could pass. He could do everything. People just oohing and on over this guy. Scouts coming, looking at this kid all the time. He was, he was good at basketball. He was good at football. He was one of them kids that you just like, you're like, man, there's nothing I can do to stand up with this guy. This guy's amazing. And they're driving home from Plattsburgh one night. And there was a drunk driver coming in the other lane and swerved into their lane and hit him head on. And the next thing you know, Nicole wakes up. Johnny Nichols is in the back seat and has crushed and broken both of his legs. And Brandon's got blood coming out of his ears and his eyes and his nose and his mouth. And she watches her boyfriend take his last breath and enter eternity. Wasn't planning on it. Wasn't thinking about it. You know, no preparations. The world and the future in front of him, gone. See you later. Ticket punched. It's ugly. It's tragic. I remember uh, we got that phone call. Hot July 3rd afternoon. What a miserable afternoon it was, too. Had a Jeep break down in Plattsburgh, and I remember it was so hot out that day. I remember specifically we're, we're in Plattsburgh picking my sister up, and you, it was so hot you could see the, the heat radiating off the top of that, that white Jeep Cherokee we had. And the thing was overheating. We almost got lock, uh, locked into that intersection and had to pull into that parking lot. And Randy was coming, and he was picking us up. We made it all the way home. It was just a miserable afternoon. There's 23 voicemails on the answering machine. I remember sitting there, we got some KFC because it was just too late to even cook dinner or nothing like that. And we're sitting there on the couch. My mom runs into the, into the bedroom. And all of a sudden, I hear the door slam and she comes running out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's imprinted in my brain. Your dad's, he's, he's died, he's gone. Wasn't thinking about it. Wasn't planning on it. Gone. That's how death works, folks. You have no idea when you're gone. Happen at any moment. Gone. And you can't cover that up. That ugly thing stares you straight in the face and it's like, all right, deal with me now. Right? Because guess what? There's a cause. There's a reason why people die. And it's not heart disease and it's not cancer and it's not a car accident and it's not an overdose and it's not those things. Those things are all, yeah, causes of death. But why is it that death is among us? For the wages of sin is death. There's a reason people die. 
For by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, therefore death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Sin is the reason we die, folks. See, so much time we, we look at the symptom without actually identifying the problem. Yeah, heart disease is a, prob- is, a, is a symptom. An overdose is a symptom. But the root cause of death is sin. Jesus Christ had to lay his life down because there was no fault in him. And there was no sin in him. And no man took his life. And nobody could kill him because the wages of sin is death. And there was no sin in him. And he laid his life down willingly. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's a reason we die. You see their problem? Same problem you've got tonight. You're going to die someday. You're going to die. Listen to their plea. Look in verse number 35. The Bible says, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, look at what he says, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. I'll draw you to the plea of the crowd, the plea of the multitudes. What is that? If thou, if thou be Christ, if thou be the king of the Jews. What is this? This skeptical cry, this skeptical plea of, oh, if you really are who you say you are, That's the plea of the world you live in. And the plea has never been louder than it is today. You live in a world, I'm talking to everybody in here, but especially these young people, you're living in a world that is going to be bent on trying to deter you from the belief that there even is a God. Because after all, if you believe that there's a God, you just are weak-minded and you need a crutch. Because you don't know how to cope with life. That's what they want you to think. Amen? After all, don't you know that science proves there is no God? I'm sorry, I'm still waiting on that study. Isn't it funny what people believe with no evidence whatsoever? I was talking to an atheist one time. I was on a plane with him. We're flying. And... uh, I was talking to him, and uh, he was telling me everything, and I, I had my Bible out, and of course, as soon as you open your Bible on the plane, it's like, this guy's stupid, right? And we're sitting there talking back and forth, and, uh, and I just asked him, I said, well, how do you think everything started? He's, you know, he's, he's, he's telling me, he's like, oh, you think God created it and all this different stuff, and you believe a dead Jew is going to save the world and all this. I mean, he's really having at it, man. And I said, okay, well, how do you explain it all? I believe in, I believe in uh, a big bang, and I believe in uh, you know, evolution and all this different stuff. You know what I told him? I said, well, you got more faith than I do. Amen. You got more faith. And if, and if anything else, if anything else, if we could just level for a moment. And the reason I'm saying this is because they talk to you like you're crazy. They talk to you like you don't have a brain. But if we can at least level here, you know what I can tell you? The Bible spends zero time proving the existence of God. It wastes not one word on proving that God is real. 
It doesn't waste its time. You know what it says? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. As to say, it just takes it for granted that he's there. And so that means if I believe in something different than that, then how about you show me, how about the burden of proof being on you because you can't duplicate what Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 did in the first place. So then you explain to me how it came into being. Happened by accident. Big old bang blew up and a little amoeba, you know, thing. First I was a tadpole when I began to begin. Or first I was an amoeba when I began to begin. Then I was a tadpole with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a banyan tree, and now I'm a doctor with a PhD. Right? That's the old, that's the old saying. You know what we'll level with? They have to have just as much faith as you, if not more, to believe what they believe, just like you have to have faith to believe what you believe. Except they don't have a book that explains exactly how it happened without contradiction. They have a bunch of scientific reports that contradict one another all the time. You know, there was a time, I think it was back in the early 90s, they found the missing link. They had finally found an evolutionary study or an evolutionary find, an archaeological dig that proved that there was a jump between a fowl and a mammal. And they said, boom, done it. We figured it out. We figured it out. We found the missing link. This is not a lie. It was a National Geographic story, and they did. They had a big thing. This little uh, had like, this little like mammal bird looking thing on the cover, and it says, "We found the missing link." The problem was they didn't tell you, and they never redacted it, and they never put out another statement correcting what had actually happened. What had happened was they were having a lunch break at the archaeological dig site, and somebody was literally eating a turkey sandwich and dropped a piece of turkey and contaminated the thing, and when they ran the, they ran the test on it, they're like, oh, this mammal's got bird DNA in it. That should make you laugh. That's funny. <laughs> Did National Ge- Geographic put out, a, uh, put out a, uh, a story that said, oh, we were sorry, we don't found the missing link, and go ahead and tear that little gazelle-looking bird off the front of that thing. Take it off your wall. We've not disproved the existence of God. No. They just left it out there. They just left it out there. And that's the cry of the crowd today, folks. If you be Christ, if there's a God... And then you hear the plea of one of the malefactors. Look in verse um, 38, I believe. Verse 39, 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Here's this man hanging on a cross, a thief, a no-good scoundrel, no good bone in his body, been absolutely uh, a rebel from his birth, hanging on a cross, dying for his sin. And he has the audacity to look at Jesus Christ and say exactly what the crowd was saying. Hey, if thou be Christ, get yourself down off here. Oh, and me too. And me too. He didn't care who Jesus Christ was. He didn't, believe what the, uh, he didn't believe what some people were saying about him. You know what he was doing? He was saying the same thing that the crowd was saying. 
He's just going with the flow. You know what he had? He had a plea. He had an unrepentant, self-righteous plea of innocence. I have not done anything wrong worthy of death. If you're who you say you are, get me down off this cross because I don't want to die. That was, what, that was his plea. Look at the plea of the other man here. Look in verse number 40. And he says, But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. Do you see a difference in the tone? Do you see a difference in the, in, in the plea from the other guy? This is a humble, heartfelt, repentant plea for mercy. Amen. He says, wait a minute, man. I know you and we deserve to be on this cross. We deserve to die and we deserve to be condemned for the things in which we have done. But this man, he's done nothing amiss. The Bible says Jesus Christ does all things well. The Bible says Jesus Christ did always those things that please the Father. And he is looking here and he says, you know what, I, I deserve this. You know, the peculiar thing about this is if you keep your hand there, you don't have to turn it, I'll read it for you. But if you want to write it down for, for Bible study later, in Matthew chapter 27 is the same account. And it gives us one more little bit of information here. In Matthew chapter number 27, in verse number 44, um, let me get there myself and one more page over. Verse 44, the Bible says, uh, in verse 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver uh, him, him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And verse 44 says, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. You know what that means? Just moments before this man rebukes his friend and says that they deserve what they're getting, they're both saying the same exact thing about Jesus Christ while they're hanging there on the cross. It says they both cast the same in their teeth. And he's talking about if thou be Christ. They were both saying the negative things about Jesus Christ. And then just a few verses later, he comes out with this epiphany and says, wait a minute, he has done nothing amiss and we deserve what we're getting. So then the only thing then becomes, what is it that changed this guy's mind from the time he was uh, deriding Jesus Christ to where he makes this plea for mercy? And if you do your due diligence and study out just so you know I'm not making stuff up, the only thing that separates these two things is verse 38 in Luke chapter 23. And the superscription also is written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Why is that significant? Because that thief was hanging there on the cross and he looked up and he read something. And he believed what he read. And the Bible says in Romans chapter number uh, chapter number four, or uh, chapter number ten, verse seventeen: Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That man was saying that Jesus Christ was this, and Jesus Christ was that, and if you're this, you do this, and if you're this, then you do this. And he looked up and he saw that superscription and said, "This is the King of the Jews." And all of a sudden, that man's heart started to melt, and he realized, "Wait a minute, I'm making a big mistake." 
this guy is something different. He's not like me and you. This guy has done something that I can't even imagine. And he says, we deserve what we're getting, but this man has done nothing amiss. Folks, if, you're gonna, if, anybody, if anybody gets saved, you know what you have to first do? Hear, hear the Word of God. And without the Word of God, you can't get saved. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I want you to hear the promise given. Look in verse 43. The Bible says, And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say to thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. This man makes an admission and a plea for mercy. And Jesus Christ comes back and he gets a promise, an instant promise. He says, Today. It didn't take any time. It was not a process. It was not a sacrament. It was not a work of his own. It was faith and who Jesus Christ was and asking him to just remember him. And instantaneously, Jesus Christ says, today, today, an instant promise. Religion today says you got to do something. Religion today says you gotta, you got to you know, pay X amount of dollars and you got to make sure you're baptized and you got to make sure that uh, you, know, you, know, you do this. And if, and if, of course, you don't uh, speak in tongues with the initial evidence of the Holy Ghost, you can't possibly be saved. And you know that you got to be confirmed and go to all these different classes. And you say you're kicking up on all the religions tonight. I'm telling you this. Anything outside of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is a heresy. And if you add anything to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's wrong. And if you detract anything from the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're wrong. That's why Paul said in Galatians, he says, Hey, if I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you that I preach unto you, let that man be accursed. Because we're dealing with heaven and hell at this moment. And when you start to pollute the truth of the word of God, God says there's a special place in hell reserved for somebody like that. When you talk about those, when he, when he talks to the Pharisees and says, and you're worthy of greater condemnation, it's not the fact that, that oh, uh, Hitler, surely he's in the greater condemnation because look at all the bad things he did. No, the religious leaders that teach false doctrine are the ones that are worthy of the greater damnation. We're talking about this in Sunday school class. We're going through the life of Christ, and we're in John chapter 3 right now, talking about uh, the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus Christ, and how he says, if a man is not born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And how a Campbellite or a Church of Christ person come in there and say, see, that means you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Right. And you know what they do when they come to this passage right here? They say that when the, when the, the thief that went, to, uh, that went to Abraham's bosom went to paradise that day, they say it was raining. That's how you know he got baptized for he kicked off because it was raining. It's been recorded as a proof text for this teaching, baptism and regeneration, that if uh, once they took him off the cross, he fell in a puddle. And the Bible warns you of those that handle the Word of God deceitfully to prop up their doctrines and confuse the people from what actual salvation is. You know what I'm preaching to you tonight? The simplicity that's in Jesus Christ. The thing that Paul said, hey, listen, I'm afraid that you've been bewitched and that, the, that Satan has blinded the minds from those, uh, it said, from the simplicity in Christ, lest the light of the glorious gospel should appear unto them and they should be saved. He says, you've been bewitched. You've been fooled. 
He receives a promise. It was an instant promise. It was a directed promise. He says, paradise. He knew where he was going. It wasn't like, I hope I was going to get there. Well, maybe I'll go to uh, purgatory, and then if they pay enough money, they'll get me out of there in a few thousand years, and maybe I'll become a saint, you know, if I can do a miracle after I'm dead. You know, and I'm trying to work that whole thing out. I'm not quite sure. And then, uh, you know, or, or maybe, you know, I go to this uh, euphoric place, or maybe I get, you know, regenerated or something like that. Maybe Buddha was right, and I get, you know, reincarnated, and maybe I go to nirvana, you know, or heaven forbid you're a Muslim, and you think you go to, like, you know, some crazy, uh, you, know, you know, penthouse in the sky or something. You say, what is, why, why, why are you saying all this? Tonight? I'm saying this tonight is because I've dealt with people over the last several months, and that's all they're talking about is that garbage. You know what they're doing? Blinded from the simplicity that's in Jesus Christ. Amen. He puts no burden on you in order to get saved. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Period. End of story. He gets a promise. He gets a directed promise. He gets a secured promise. You know what Jesus Christ said in that verse? He says, shout thou, be with me. You know what he did? He sealed it. You say, you say how does he know it was secured? Because Jesus Christ said it. You want to know why I know I'm going to heaven when I die? Because Jesus Christ told me. And I believe what he said. And it's sealed by his word. And I don't worry about it. It's settled. I couldn't change it if I wanted to. I'm bone of his bone. Listen, I'm bone of his bone and I'm flesh of his flesh. And there's nothing I can do to get out of his body. The Bible says, even if I believe not, yet he abideth faithful. And it doesn't matter what I do from now until I croak, I'm covered. And anybody that tells you different wants to control your life out of fear. And they're wrong. And they don't know their Bible. And they're deceiving people. And they're deceiving you. And they're liars. And the Bible says you need to call that stuff out and call it what it is. You know what? Listen, folks. I know that it's been, there's been a drag and there's been all this stuff going on. But I'm telling you right now, the thing that will get you excited again and the thing that will get you going again is getting back to the, like, the foundational understanding of where you are. You're standing with Jesus Christ. You're staying Jesus Christ. And knowing that... There's nothing you can do to change it. Look at the, uh, the promise given to the other man. Say, what is it? Uh, I'm still listening. He doesn't get one. He goes through life with no promise. He goes through life questioning. He goes through life with no security. There is no promise given to that other man. And you know what the truth of it is? If this book is right, and I believe it is, that when that man died, just a few moments later, he entered a place called hell. And he's there right now. And he's never getting out. That doesn't excite me. That doesn't, that doesn't thrill my soul. Brother Donovan said one time, I was talking to him about preaching, and he says there's never a good time to talk about hell. He says it's not a good time to talk about hell at a birthday party. 
So it's not a good time to talk about hell at a wedding. It's not a good time to talk about hell at a funeral. It's not a good time to talk about hell half the time when you're in church. But he says, it's on you to make sure you talk about it. Because, ladies and gentlemen, here tonight, whether you believe it or not is immaterial. And I know, I know we have, we, I know we got visitors in here tonight. I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to be brash without reason. But the truth of the matter is, people die and they go to hell every day, and they don't get out, and they burn forever. And you say, well, that's not God. God's a God of love, and He would never do that. He didn't do that. You did that. To think that we blame God for sending somebody to hell when he gave salvation at no cost to you. When he gave salvation with no prerequisites attached. And all you had to do was believe and repent and ask the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart. He doesn't even require you to live a certain way. He just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Open to everybody. No, it doesn't have nothing to do with your race. has nothing to do with your status in life. has nothing to do with uh, any kind of money you have in the bank. has nothing to do with your sexual orientation, if we really wanted to go there. You know what it has to do with? You realizing you're a sinner on your way to hell and asking Jesus Christ to save you. And guess what? If you reject that, the Bible says, how can you escape if you neglect so great salvation? But yet we say God is cruel. No. Man doesn't go to hell for what he does. A man goes to hell for what he doesn't do. He says there's a sin unto death. The unpardonable sin is killing yourself. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's just stupid. You say, what is it? Rejecting light. God gives you light. And light rejected becomes lightning and burns you up. I'm almost done. I'd like for you to notice their position. You think about this for a moment. This is what boggles the mind of of people. Here's two men. They're practically the same in every bit of detail that we have about them. They're both thieves. They're both... Uh, uh, condemned to die for their, they've been they've been caught they've committed their sin they've been condemned to die they've both been condemned to die the same death they've both been given uh, they've both been introduced to the same man but here's the reality they're literally the same person except one's going to heaven and one's going to hell how could that be how could that be that the person the, the the same person just two different bodies, and one of them's going to heaven, and one of them is going to hell. Again, what I say, the, the, the knee-jerk reaction was, oh, well, God's not fair. Can you, can you listen to what the man on, on, on the wrong side was saying? I know what he used to do. I used to go where he used to go. I know what you've done. And you're telling me he's going to heaven and I'm going to hell? Fooey on you. You obviously don't know him like I know him. Does that sound familiar to some folks? He was just cursing Jesus just a minute ago, just like I was. What a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. That's what he says. But the truth be told, 
The only thing different about those two men is one's on the right side and one's on the wrong side. It's where they're at in regards to the man in the middle. That's the only thing that differentiates the two. Has nothing to do with their past. Has nothing to do with what they said. How big of a hypocrite this other guy was. Has nothing to do about the deeds that they've done in their body. It solely has to do with their position in regards to Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's the wonder of salvation. The only thing separating these two men is a man in the middle. I remember the day I decided to get on the right side. I remember when I was sick and tired of my life and where it was going. Because I realized that my fun was running out. And I told the story before. I remember, my, my mom's here, sitting here. I used, to, I used to, man, every night, every night, mom, remember? Turn the lights off. Mom, you going to bed? Mom, you going to bed? Why? I was afraid to die. I told her that hundreds of times. And I'd lay there on my bed, and I would, and, and I asked my mom, and I said, Mom, how do you pray? My mom was raised Roman Catholic. And she showed me that our father, and I did it every single night. And I said, Our father, our heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I go through that thing, and I get done, and I'm thinking, It can't be over. And I'd, I'd say that as if that got me into the throne room. You know, that was like my opener, you know, and I'd get in there and I'd be like, now, God, I'm scared. <laughs> and all of a sudden I start praying. And I'd say, well, I don't want to say amen, because if I say amen, I thought God would go away. I did that from time, seven, eight years old. All the way up till I was 13 years old. And I remember walking in that funeral home on Main Street. I walked in that funeral home, and I walked by my dad's casket. And I looked at him, and I touched his hand. And I felt that cold, stiff, dead hand. And it was just like God came down in that funeral home and stood behind me and said, Hey, that's what you've been afraid of. Look at it. Look at it. And I remember, I was like, man. Here I'm staring death face to face. Thirteen years old. And I had the most unlikely person invite me to church. Justin Butchino. I know. He's in prison now. That's not a shocker. That's not a shocker. Invited me to church. And I heard about Jesus Christ. And I heard about the death and the burial and the resurrection. And all of a sudden, the puzzle pieces from all those years started to click and form in my mind as I tried to work through one of the hardest times in my life. And I realized that that was my future. But how did I stop being afraid of that future? And the puzzle piece came in. The Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins. And He endured the cross, despising the shame. 
and is now set down on the right hand of the Father on high, that He can live and intercede on our behalf. And I remember asking Lord Jesus Christ to save me. And I'm not going to say that all of a sudden the floodgates opened and everything was different and everything happened. No, you know what it was? It was a little bit of a journey for me. But God started a work in a little boy's life when I realized I was on my way to hell. And I realized that all the stuff that I would want to pursue and all the distractions and all the confusion, all the noise was just a distraction to get me away from the simplicity that would save my soul. You say, why would you preach a message like that to a church full of folks that are probably saved? Because the Bible says that the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. And the Bible says, for I am crucified with Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Because there's one more tragic story to this. And that even though there was a man that got saved that day, you know what the problem was? He never had an opportunity to live for Jesus Christ. For him, it was too late. He got saved on his deathbed. But you want to know the difference between him and everybody that's sitting here tonight? You have an opportunity to live for him. You think of the maniac of Gadara. I'm going to give this illustration and I'll shut up. He's on the He's in the tombs and the mountains going crazy and there's been and he's and he's just tormented full of the devil. People in the village of the Gadarenes have bound him in chains and he supernaturally breaks the chains. Living amongst the tombs. The Bible says over in Mark chapter number 5 that he cries all night long being in torment. Until one day Jesus Christ pulls his boat ashore on the sandy beach of Gadarene. And as he steps out of that boat, the Bible says that the maniac of Gadara ran to Jesus Christ to worship him. And as he falls at the feet of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ acknowledges this man. Because after all, the world had already tried to clean him up. Discipline didn't work. Religion didn't work. Psychology didn't work. Science didn't work. He was in trouble. But there was something different about Jesus Christ. And he finds himself bound at the feet of Jesus Christ. And you know the story how... The folks from the village come and they hear the story and they hear, there's no way. There's no way. This man's been separated from his family. And he's been in these tombs being in torment from the devil all these years. And they decide to come down to the shore and get a glimpse of what had happened. And the Bible says that the maniac was sitting there 
clothed and in his right mind. And then he goes to Jesus Christ and he petitions him. He says, let me go with you. I just want to be with you. Just like the man on the cross here. Jesus Christ says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He went with him that day. The maniac Gadara comes to Jesus Christ and says, let me come with you now. And Jesus says, sorry. No doing, you can't come. Well, what do you want me to do? I want you to go home. And I want you to tell your friends. And I want you to tell your family. And I want you to tell your loved ones. And I want you to tell everybody you meet what amazing things Jesus Christ did for you today. You say, what's the opportunity that you and I have to now, right now? Is you're not the man, you're not the malefactor on the side that gets to go with him today. You still have a life to live. How long? I don't know. But right now, you're still breathing. You're still vertical tonight. And you want to know what I fear? Is that we become so enamored with what the world propagates and what society tells us to worry about that we forget the purpose in which God has left us to do. And all of a sudden, the power of the cross becomes non-evident in our life because we're not telling our friends and we're not telling our loved ones and nobody sees the joy on our faces because we're so engulfed in this world and the nonsense and the polarization of sides and all the garbage Listen, I don't want to waste this life. I remember as we carried my dad to the cemetery that day, my Uncle Kim was standing behind me. Chain out his pocket, full biker garb. Love it, man. It's a guy I want on my team. He texts me all the time. He says, I love you, Joe. I call him Uncle Kim. He's not really my uncle, but... He's family in our book, right? And I remember walking as a 13-year-old boy hanging on my dad's casket. And as I walked there, he put his hand on my shoulder and he says, time to grow up now. Time to grow up now. And we put him on the little lowering belt there. And I remember looking at the tombstone. And it had the year of his birth and it had the dash and then it had... 2001. And as a 13-year-old boy, I thought to myself, the only thing that matters is what happens in that little space of time. And folks, tonight, I preach a very simple message that you all know and are hopefully acquainted with in efforts to refocus the priorities and to refocus the mission and to refocus the desire and the joy, and the excitement. Because guess what? The world needs to see folks that are excited about what took place in their life when they came into contact with Jesus Christ. That's what they need tonight. You know what you need tonight? 
You need to find your place back at the foot of the cross that maybe you found yourself sliding away over time and have maybe just pined away just a small little bit. And you need to find your, and nestle yourself back up to the foot of that cross because that's where you get your power from. And without that, this life's going to be hard. But let's nestle up to the foot of Jesus Christ and make the main thing the main thing again because the only thing that separates us is that man in the middle. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the book. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be in church tonight. I pray, Father, that the things that were said would be of help. Father, I pray that they would, Lord, just be a blessing. Father, I pray, God, that you would work in the hearts of your people. I thank you for saving my soul. I thank you for making a difference in my life and changing my life. Lord, and walking with me and talking with me as I go through this life. Thank you, Lord, that you're a friend to sinners. Thank you, Father, that you've given me a church and a church family. Thank you, Lord, for my, my parents being here tonight, Lord. I love them, and I thank you for them. And I thank you for the influence they've had in my life, God. And I just pray, Father, that tonight, as these words go out, well, that you deal with the hearts of your people. We love you, and we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't need it complicated. I like it. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, simple thing, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God had raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's not complicated. It never was complicated. We make it complicated. Everybody has to make it complicated. It's, it's simple. You know what that does? It puts a joy. Take your songbook. Let's do 453. Is he singing in your heart tonight? I'm telling you what he is, mine. I enjoy, I enjoy being saved. I never forget the day I got saved. I never forget all the times down through my life where he's done stuff in my life. I keep that fresh in my mind. Uh, I don't care who gets tired of hearing it. Doesn't matter. I like it. Uh, it just keeps me thinking about him. Keeps me thinking about him. Sing it out. Should be a song. There within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Be still in all of life's ebbs and flow. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. You know, I bet you that thief never regretted one second after he asked Jesus to remember him. Not once. I'll bet you the maniac of Gennaro for the rest of his life not regretted one moment. Sure, man, I'd like to go with Jesus too, but you know what he got? He got a blessing to go back and tell some people. You go down through there, those two guys on the road to Emmaus, I mentioned them, they never regretted it. Never regretted it. They got to see Jesus again. They were lost for a few minutes. They thought he was gone. And then all of a sudden they realized, hey, he's not. He has he is risen. I like those angels when they say, he's not here. He's risen. You know what we got? We got a risen, living Savior today. And we don't have to worry about anything this world has. I ain't got time to die, by the way. He's just going to have to plan that for me and take care of it. Uh, I'm going to go do what he tells me to do, and I'm going to wake up tomorrow and do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to keep on doing what I'm supposed to do, and one of these days, I'm going to take my last breath like everybody else. I ain't got time to worry about that. That's his baby. I just want to have a smile on my face. <laughs> So that when I get a chance to tell somebody about him,